Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. Today is Friday, August 11th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. And rather than do our usual intro today, we are going to take a, a quick moment to talk about what happened in Hawaii earlier this week. Uh, Nick and I are, are recording on Wednesday, so the news pretty much just broke recently that at least six people have died as wildfires raged out of control on the western side of Maui. We don't have a full update as to, you know, what this immediate fallout is going to be, how many acres have been impacted, how many people have been impacted aside from those that we just mentioned. Uh, we will definitely provide an update on our next episode. But for now, you know, our, our hearts go out to all those impacted. And fortunately, wildfire season has been another brutal one this year. And this is one of those stories that we just have to remind ourselves we can't get desensitized to because each one of those six people was a person. Each one of the six people had a family, had friends that cared for them. So, you know, the the numbers continue to get higher year after year with wildfires getting more and more intense. But we have to remember that, like I said, each one of these people had a story. Yeah, no, absolutely. All all our thoughts and prayers go out to those families that are um, having to face the fact that they just lost a loved one. And to the 2,100 people that are you know, being housed at uh, the emergency shelters in the state, uh, you know, keep your hopes up and um, we're, we're thinking about you for sure. Yeah. We are going to get into our regularly scheduled programming now, but like I said, we will definitely, definitely follow up on the story in our next episode. for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Elena Shao, who writes, what this year's astonishing ocean heat means for the planet, for the New York Times. So we mentioned last week how this year's extreme heat is also impacting our oceans. And then right after that, the New York Times posted a very helpful article with graphics that show just how hot our oceans actually are. Shao writes that the oceans are the hottest they've ever been, and it's by an unusually wide margin. And for me, at least, it was definitely eye-opening to see this data graphically. So if you want to check out the article in your show notes, really, really helpful and impactful maps and different graphics showing you know, just how outrageous this summer's heat has been on the oceans. In July, some hot spots in the ocean reached 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 38 degrees Celsius. And the North Atlantic Ocean specifically had recent temperatures that were consistently two degrees Fahrenheit higher than what is expected at this time of year. So pretty much across the board, the oceans have been hotter and the North Atlantic just really, really felt this heat wave. So this can partially be attributed to this year's El Nino climate pattern that began in June. But global ocean temperatures have been steadily rising since the Industrial Revolution, when humans began to drastically increase our greenhouse gas emissions. In other words, the impacts of human-caused climate change on ocean temperatures are undeniable. Yeah, and this is extremely dangerous for marine life because there are tons of species that can only survive or can only reproduce in certain temperature ranges. This obviously isn't going to be impacted by the oceans, but when I think about you know, certain 
alligators, crocodiles, when they lay their eggs, the sex of the baby is determined by the water temperature. So if all of a sudden you have an entire population that, sure, they're laying a bunch of eggs, but they're all male or they're all female, that's a problem for the long-term survival of the species. Other animals that need to find colder water to lay their eggs, it's been harder to find that colder water. And then for coral reefs, higher ocean temperatures can completely wipe them out. So we have so many species that are honestly just really finicky with what kind of water they can survive in or reproduce in or their food can survive in. So it's not like it's just water that's getting warmer and, oh, when you go into the ocean to go swimming, oh, it's a little bit warmer. No, this impacts every single species that calls the ocean home. A silver lining in all of this, if we can even call it a silver lining, is that July's high ocean temperature is actually consistent with climate models predictions of sea surface temperatures. What we are measuring worldwide is on the higher end of that range, but it's still within the average temperature range predicted by our climate models. Yeah, and the only exception is the North Atlantic Ocean, which Matt mentioned earlier. The article also points out to the Tongan volcanic eruption in the Pacific Ocean last year as a possible influence on the sharp rise in ocean temperatures because it added tens of millions of tons of water vapor to the atmosphere, which is a greenhouse gas that can then trap heat. And what's really important there is that some climate conspiracy theorists still to this day will claim that we're not causing climate change and this is all just some natural cycle. And to be fair, part of it is natural. Like Nick just mentioned, the volcanic eruption underwater near Tonga in the South Pacific, that's going to cause global temperatures to rise. But rising global temperatures as a result of our continued fossil fuel usage is absolutely undeniable. My closing thoughts on why the ocean is so important to discuss here is that 90% of heat caused by burning fossil fuels has been absorbed by the ocean. The ocean covers 70% of the earth and is a larger carbon sink than all of our forests and all of our soils. This heat causes that water to expand, which is going to make the sea levels rise. And that's part of why we need healthy oceans. Yeah, no question. And I want to touch on the point that you said about um, animals trying to find colder water in order to lay eggs and in order Mm -hmm. to survive. Not every species and not every animal can just go, you know, travel, whatever it is, 100 miles or 500 miles or 10,000 miles, whatever it is. Yeah. To get to colder water. So like we are going to lose species straight up if that continues. Um, And we see this this higher ocean temperatures continue to get worse and worse. Yeah, that is definitely a really good point. And an unfortunate side effect of climate change is like we are currently experiencing this the sixth great extinction event. And this is why, you know, this is how we're seeing it in real time. It's The fact that migration patterns for certain animals are going to be uninhabitable. It's your food supply is going to disappear. It's all of these things adding up where, you know, it's easy to chalk it up to just, oh, climate change is impacting everything. But here's how, you know, here are those concrete examples that we're seeing day in and day out. Yeah, no, absolutely. Our next story is from NPR where Tamara Keith writes, Biden creates a new national monument near the Grand Canyon. Yeah, let's move on to some good news here. On Tuesday, President Biden designated the fifth national monument of his presidency near the Grand Canyon in an area that has both national significance and indigenous significance. It will be called, and pardon my pronunciation, Nuovajo Itza Kukveni Grand Canyon National Monument, and its lands are sacred to indigenous peoples, and many tribal nations have been calling for protections of this area for years. 
Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland is the first Native American cabinet secretary, and she said that this will help protect lands that many tribes call their eternal home. It's known to Native Americans as a place of healing, religious ceremonies, hunting, and gathering of plants. This move also protects the land from all future uranium mining. New permits had been suspended on this land for around a decade. This doesn't impact existing uranium mining claims. It just guarantees that no new mining permits will be granted. A recent statewide poll in Arizona showed strong support for protecting the now national monument, but there were some concerns with local ranchers that have worked these lands for generations. But the administration told reporters that the designation would not impact private property rights. And that's really important, too, because, you know, as environmentalists, myself included, I'm always out here hoping that we're going to be protecting more lands. It's not like we're just talking about lands all the time that are completely uninhabited. Sometimes it's a forest that's pristine and untouched, and we want to make sure it stays pristine and untouched forever. But sometimes we're talking about lands that people actually live on. You know, in this case, these ranchers, they've lived here for generations. They farmed here for generations. And it's important that we don't take anything away from them because, let's face it, environmentalists are kind of behind the eight ball sometimes with what we're trying to accomplish. And the more people we can get our si- on our side, the better. In this case, this was a measure that was very popular in the state of Arizona before this became declared a national monument. So mm-hmm. why take some of that goodwill and throw it away by impacting you know, your neighbors that are actually living on this land? This is really, really well done to make sure that private property isn't impacted, but the land itself and all the land surrounding that private property is going to maintain protected, pristine which is important to not just those ranchers, but like we said, entire tribes of Native Americans that have been here way longer than America has. Yeah, no question. There's definitely something to be said for something that means a lot to um, a group of people that are already extremely marginalized as it is, um, and to to show respect towards them and and to to make sure that this is a, a national monument is great. Yeah. And this comes at a time when President Biden and his administration are trying to tout its environmental record as part of the reelection campaign. And to that, I would just say, keep doing good things like this, but they also need to do more to stop fossil fuel usage if they want young voters to be excited about President Biden's potential reelection. I saw earlier this week, um, he actually said that he had already declared climate change as a national emergency, and that's not true. When pressed on it, he said, practically, we have. And and sure, you know, we rejoined the Paris Agreement. We have made all of these measures, including the Inflation Reduction Act, that are aimed at reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. So in how we handle climate change, have we basically declared it a national emergency? You could make a case for that. I still want the official declaration. I still want to hear those words. I still want you know, emergency funding to go towards climate change that doesn't need to go through Congress. When we have the wildfire in Hawaii, for example, that is something that emergency funding through FEMA will go towards, but it shouldn't take the fire breaking out for us to understand that we are at higher risk of wildfires. Yeah. So sure, President Biden has declared a climate emergency in all but name, but I want to hear it. And I want to see the follow, the policy follow up by his declaration. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you here. And I also think that it's going to take something like you said, it shouldn't take this, but it, it will take some crazy catastrophic event for him to, to consider it 
uh, calling it a climate emergency. So, see, I don't even know if it will. I think, I think it's just naturally progressing that way. He he's basically doing the things that he would be doing if not for declaring it one already. But you know, I, I want to see less new oil and gas permits, right? I, I want to see, like I said, the emergency funding just going to areas that need better mitigation to climate change and right. not just adaptation and not just recovery efforts. Like there are emergency funds that could be used to offset climate change from having as large of an impact. Let's do that rather than just saying, oh, we're living with climate change. Let's use emergency money, money on seawalls. Let's use emergency money on getting more firefighters out there to help with woodland fires in the West. Yeah, It's just, it's not going to change much, but it'll change enough. So that's why I'm just hopeful that we actually hear the, you know, climate change is a national emergency. Yeah. All right. Time for this week's environmental policy roundup. Conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation has reportedly come up with a campaign strategy called Project 2025, which will call for more oil and gas drilling and less green energy for the future Republican candidate. The first step in this plan would be to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act, which would impact cars, oil and gas wells, power plants, and obviously renewable energy. The plan also aims to give the executive branch more direct power over every agency of government, which means under Project 2025, climate change would no longer be a security threat to the National Security Council. President Biden announced a $100 million grant program to subsidize state and local governments carbon recycling programs and purchases. This article says that the grant will help fund projects that recycle carbon waste, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and ultimately help build a more circular economy, which means that manufacturing goods are made from things that have already been produced. So we're not going to get into this too much, but I will probably be infuriated during (laughs) Project 2025 during that campaign, which is going to be Less than a year from now, when, when we're talking about the next yeah. presidential election and you know next round of uh, congressional elections, we will try to not be too insufferable on the show. But I can't guarantee that. Of, no, I mean, like <laughs> I think people listening to the show don't need us to be too preachy, but we will try to do our best to report on what's going on, and yeah. I will give you not so coded advice on if you care about the environment, who your best option is. Yeah, I mean, this is like just wild that we would even have something that would suggest uh, more oil drilling and less green energy. I, you have to be completely just nothing going on. Delusional is right. Delusional. Just blinders on. Like I only believe this and I will not believe anything else. And that's what I'm going to believe for the rest of my I, life. Like, I, I don't even think it's about belief. I think it's just about money, man. Like they have people lining their pockets to say, Hey, who cares? What's true. Go do what's going to make us some more money. And we'll, uh, yeah. We'll get you that house that you want. Right. Exactly. Money, money, money. It's just tough because Terrible. like, you know, not to, not to break this down into too much party politics, but even young Republicans believe climate change is a threat, like overwhelmingly in a national poll. Yeah. It's shown that people under the age of 30 believe climate change is a threat, want the U S to do something about it. If you're running for, for like, any level of government, state, federal, even just locally in your town, your city. Why not listen to what every single person in one party thinks, plus a really good chunk of your party 
I don't know. It's yeah. politics are so freaking weird, man. They are. The two party system. And you're welcome that I said freaking uh, so you don't have to edit that. Thank one. you. Appreciate it. Love it. <laughs> All right. As always, those stories are in your show notes. If you want to go read for some more detail, we're going to take a quick break. We've got two more stories for you when we get back. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, withering heat is more common, but getting AC is still a struggle in public housing. By NPR's Jennifer Ludden. Hey, so breaking news. After the break, we have another heat story for you in the middle of the summer in the Northern Hemisphere. (laughs) Who would have guessed it? So I personally found this article really interesting. And, you know, obviously it's important as we talk about another hot summer that is part of a warming trend. But this covers how heat is impacting public housing in areas that are not used to extreme heat. I remember two years ago, we talked about Portland on the show because they had that crazy heat wave where temperatures were over 116 degrees Fahrenheit. I texted my friend who lived there, actually still lives there. And she told me that most people in Portland don't have air conditioners because you just don't need them in the summer. Yeah. So what they were experiencing was tremendous heat and you know, when it gets hot in my apartment in New York, we could fire up the air conditioner. We could close our, our blinds so less sunlight gets in and the apartment cools off pretty reasonably. In 116 degrees, I don't know if just the blinds and ceiling fan would do the same job. Yeah. With extreme heat getting worse and more prevalent across the world, there will be more of a need for air conditioners, which unfortunately contribute to climate change due to their high energy usage. This article says that people who live in public housing are especially vulnerable to heat because they're lower income, people of color, older, chronically ill people who typically find their buildings in neighborhoods without as much shade cover from trees. Ludden writes, much public housing is decades old and was built before central air was widely available. Retrofitting these buildings to include central air would be extremely expensive. So before getting into other ways to address extreme heat, the article provides a few examples of how different cities are addressing the issue. So go check out the story in your show notes if you want to hear more about Portland, there's a city in Texas, you know, how they are handling this issue. And this part is more important than it actually might seem at first. And I I almost kind of discredited it as a way to say some municipalities can't figure out how to get air conditioners to affordable housing. So here's what they're doing instead. But 
it's not about, we can't do this. So we're doing something else that's maybe not as impactful. This relates to how people are actually willing to, to accept the help on extreme heat. A study done by Portland State University found that some people don't like the noise from their air conditioners. They don't find air conditioners conditioners as efficient, or they just prefer fans or sunblocking drapes. So it's important to take a step back and look at, sure, air conditioners might help, but not if people don't want to use them. Yeah. The study also made it clear that better public education on heat-related illnesses and how to stay cool are both really important for cities. And if I'm someone who was living in, you know, an area where I didn't have AC, I would be 100% voting for getting AC in my unit as fast as possible. But here's the thing, like they they were voting against AC, if we want to put it down to like a, let's say it was a democratic decision, because they didn't feel like they needed them. So landlords are like, why are we going to purchase ACs for the building if they don't need AC? Tenants are saying, why am I going to purchase my own if I don't need it? And we're talking about Portland where plenty of tree cover, Moderate climate, yeah. Yeah, like it doesn't get as hot up there. And then all of a sudden it's 116 degrees. We had that heat dome effect where it just basically had people boiling. And, you know, sure, I I think that you and I grew up in an area where we needed air conditioner over the summer. So it made sense for us to say, of course, we'd like to continue to have AC. But if you're not used to it because you never needed it and because it's not as part of your culture as it was for us, you get those really good blinds that block out the sunlight and then your apartment doesn't get as hot. Your house doesn't get as hot. If that's right. what you're used to and that's what you like, it might be pretty abrasive to say, actually, this really noisy air conditioner, it does cool off the house. But, you know, I I was doing fine before this and now my electric bill is way higher. Yeah, it's something that's going to take getting used to. And I think that's why it's important that they bring up better public education on heat related illnesses for those people who who might not be able to just simply close the blinds. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, just honestly, really interesting issue from both an environmental perspective, an energy efficiency perspective, you know, a, a general public housing perspective, people's lives here. Like this is, yeah. this is where you look at, you know, I talked about earlier how climate change is impacting things on a day-to-day and this is what we're seeing in real time about the oceans. This is what we're seeing in real time about people and this is a real world application of the climate's getting hotter and it's not as simple as just turning on the AC because some people don't have it. Some people don't want it. So what do we do as a society moving forward to, to combat extreme heat? That's unfortunately only going to get hotter. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a rough issue. All right. Our last quick hit of the week is titled cheetahs in Kuno is India's effort to reintroduce the big cat facing a crisis by Sutik Biswas of the BBC. So we've spoken about this program a few times on the show this year and now have some more numbers and an additional unfortunate update. Kuno National Park received 20 cheetahs between last September and February of this year. And since March, six cheetahs and three cubs that were born in the park have died. Cheetah experts say that losing this many of the founding population is actually fairly common, which makes me feel a lot better about our previous update a few months ago. Um, there could be even more deaths in year two. So this means that the population will continue to decline before it can increase. And the experts expect the numbers to get down to as low as five to seven cheetahs before that population begins to increase. The first litters with a realistic chance of survival are expected to be born next year, but these eventual litters might provide relief to the program itself. 
Conservation groups in the other countries, including South Africa and Namibia, express concerns about how the program is being managed. Some say the cheetahs are not finding, hunting for, or receiving enough food. Others feel that the animals are not receiving adequate veterinary care. So something I found really interesting here is that by rehoming these cheetahs, some began to grow their winter coats in anticipation of South Africa's winter. They were then met with India's wet and hot monsoon season, which presented a whole Mm. slew of issues. Most of the cheetahs are adapting well, and no cheetahs have died from poaching, hunting, snaring, or poisoning. So the program isn't failing in that regard. There's also huge community support for the reintroduction and repopulation of cheetahs in India. So I don't know. I wouldn't say the program necessarily is failing, but it does have its issues. And I think it's a very, very valid concern to point out that these cheetahs might not be receiving the same amount of food that they should be, the same amount of care that they should be. And when you're trying to repopulate a population that for years, I think 70 years, has been absent of this land that they used to call home, you got to take all of those necessary steps to make sure that things are going to go well. What if you just, and this is a very baseline thing, but like, what if you just A, B, you know, oh, this, this one gets um, a lot of food, you know, or like two times the amount that we're feeding them. And then this one gets the same amount and see what happens. Well, here's the thing. It's, it's something where you don't want to feed them at all, right? You want them to To be self-sufficient, right? Yeah. So like if, if you start feeding them too much, they get reliant on humans. And what we need to see is like, maybe it's, it's something of introducing more natural prey species. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is going to come down to the wildlife park managers. And if you listen to Monday's episode, you know, maybe this is going to be something that that giant African wildlife conservation conference tackles. Like how, how do, how does this program receive the support that it needs? Yeah. It's, it's something that, yeah, it's something that's maybe going to come up, hopefully is. I, I don't think that this program necessarily is failing yet, but I, I think that the the issues people have with it are, are very, very valid points and, and hopefully well-received by the Indian conservation team. Yeah. And it is a very interesting thing too. Like, do you, do you release more like rabbits or something like in that area so that they can just find them? And I don't know like there's so many different things that go into wildlife conservation. I give them all the credit in the world for, for even trying it. So, yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating career that, you know, every single little moving piece you think of when you think of an ecosystem, they're dealing with day in and day out. So, you know, more power to the conservationists. And let's hope that once this population dies out a little more, it then finds a way to pick back up like we're expecting. Yeah, no, completely agree. All right. That will do it for today's episode of TPT. We will be back next Friday for another episode. It's actually going to be an interview with Corey Tyree of Trillum Renewable Chemicals. Nick is on vacation next week, so uh, we are taking yet another week off from TPT. You're still getting your episode, but your boys are getting that rest of the day. <laughs> Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Janus produced our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? You can hear more of me from soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo is made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace.